Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. Um, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com at the Society of Reform Podcasters. Um, also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Um, we've started writing there again. Um, I have an article coming out this weekend. Travis Rogers had an article come out last weekend. So we're starting to pick up that again and start putting out uh, material for that. But there's other good material there as well. They're great material. Um, so check it out, theparticularbaptist.net. You may notice that I'm flying solo tonight. Um, my brother Sean um, had some other things he needed to take care of um, and would not be able to join this weekend. Um, he's one of those things is seminary, trying to finish up uh, his classes at CBTS, um, focusing on Greek at the moment. So I'm flying solo tonight. So I'm going to present more of a, of a devotional uh, presentation tonight. And I want to talk about the doctrine of repentance. Okay, I want to talk about the doctrine of repentance. Why is it a fundamental doctrine? Why is it such a crucial doctrine that we grasp? Um, and I want to talk about that as well. But our, our passage this evening will be 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. That will be kind of the focus passage. Uh, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence to produce in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, a church that was battered by sin, battered by evil that had come in, sin that had creeped in among the people. And we see different examples of this in uh, particular 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, verses 11 through 13, um, Paul addresses their pride and their division. You know, some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And Paul addresses the sinfulness that they had. We also see in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, sexual immorality that had creeped into the church. Um, there was incest going on. Man had his father's wife or his mother-in-law. So they were, uh, they were, permeated with sin. They had let sin become a part of them, and there was not much repentance going on in their uh, in the Christian life. There was not much uh, repentance of their sins, hatred for sin, a sensitivity to sin as they should have. Um, Charles Hodge, uh, American Presbyterian, he said they were puffed up, i.e. elated with the conceit of their good estate, notwithstanding they were tolerating in their communion, a crime which even the heathen abhorred. So they had become so callous to their sin that it was normal for them. The sin wasn't being dealt with. The sin wasn't being repented of. It wasn't being hated. It wasn't being forsaken. It was welcomed. It was tolerated. So this creates a problem for the Christian. It creates a problem for the Christian, especially in the Corinthian church. 
they decided to live two different ways. You had one way that was supposed to be in holiness, and then there was another way that was clinging to their old flesh. And Paul was rebuking them in the first letter for their disobedience, and he even called for church discipline to put the person out from among them that had been living in this particular sin, especially, uh, he pointed out, the sin of sexual morality, that they were to uh, put the leaven out of them. There's a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. And that's what happens when you have unchecked sin. It produces an unhealthy effect on the church. It can cause sinful influences to creep in. Um, it might cause others to fall into sin. So unrepentant sin must be dealt with um, by the church uh, by putting those members out that refuse to repent with the hopes of reconciliation and repentance in that person. Um, because sin is not something to trifle with. So, But it's so easy to allow sin to, to creep into our lives, to creep into the church if we aren't careful. Um, and we have to be very, very careful. But sometimes sin can be unknown to us. You know, we see in Psalm 1912, um, it says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. So David is acknowledging that we can sin unknowingly. We can not realize that we're sinning or we can sin without even willfully doing so. And he acknowledges that to the Lord and says, Father, please, Lord, please forgive me of those things that I have done that I don't even know that I've done, but I know I've done sinful things in your sight. That just shows our condition before God. It shows our fallenness. And sin or lawlessness really touches every part of us. Um, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 6, paragraph 2 says, Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness in communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And that means that all of our being is corrupted by sin, it's defiled by sin. These things are a result of the fall. God's perfect creation is defiled by sin, not just our bodies, but our, our souls, our, our minds, our wills. So, so much so that even those things that appear to be good on the outside, they're actually evil in relation to God, apart from uh, doing them from a changed heart by the Spirit. And we see very clearly Paul makes it very clear in Romans 5 that we are fallen in Adam, and this sin continues to permeate us. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. So man is accredited with having committed the sin of Adam. Since he is the, the human race's covenant representative in the covenant of works that we find in Genesis 2, <clears throat> If you recall, it says that uh, if you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you will die, right? That would be eating the tree or eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam chose to fall and his fall took the human race with him. And so the sin has come to us through Adam. And unfortunately for us Christians, we still have this sin. We still have sinfulness that we have to deal with that we have to fight, that we have to put to death, and we're to not stop fighting sin just because we are justified, that we are made right in the eyes of God. Justification does not mean we are rendered subjectively righteous, meaning that our, our condition in and of ourselves is made righteous by 
uh, being justified. Uh, that's not what justification is. It doesn't change us subjectively. It changes us objectively in terms of our uh, our state before God's tribunal. It changes um, us from guilty to not guilty. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ on us, and he accounts us as have kept uh, as having kept his whole law. He says we are not guilty. But the result of that justification is sanctification. They're not to be conflated. But sanctification is the natural result of that justification, and that we continue to repent, we grow in holiness. That means we're turning away from sin in our lives, right? We're turning away from sin, we're forsaking it, we're growing more and more like Christ. And this is why repentance is absolutely necessary for the Christian as we continue in our walk. And I want to talk about what repentance is and really how this is supposed to look in, in the Christian life um, as we uh, as we move toward on our uh, toward the celestial city on our pilgrimage, like in Pilgrim's Progress. But the doctrine of repentance, I, I think, is one of those doctrines that is seldom taught in the evangelical church today, at least not in a uh, a real sense. I mean, I think there is a sense when uh, when pastors might say, you know, you need to believe in Jesus, you need to ask him to forgive you of your sins. There's maybe a cursory understanding of repentance there, but in terms of really digging down into what repentance is, I, I don't think that uh, is dealt with as much in the church today. I mean, you you uh, you look at all the way from uh, word of faith preachers like Joel Steen, and you wonder why their churches are, his church is so big, uh, because he doesn't really teach about sin in the way that the Bible talks about. He doesn't teach repentance and, and self-denial. It's it's a worldly faith, so it attracts. Um, but I think if, if repentance was taught, there would be far less people in his church. True repentance was taught um, because that way, the way of the, the cross, the way of Christ requires self-sacrifice. It requires us to give up what we love. Um, and, and so I think that uh, that is why it is not taught like it should be, um, because it is a hard teaching. It is something that pushes against who we are. Yes, even as Christians, it pushes against our flesh, and we don't like to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. It's something that um, makes it, we have to work at it. We have to really think about uh, our, our sin and, and think introspectively. That's not something we like to do, necessarily. Um, it's not easy to do. But we, we have to be willing to uh, forsake ourselves and forsake these things that, that we love, right? If you look at Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25 through 33, um, I'll read this uh, real quick. It says, uh, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the costs, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, 
this man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what Jesus is saying here is that to follow him means all or nothing, right? There's no, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to give some of my life to Christ and the rest I'm going to do whatever I want. I'll, I'll have my sin. I'll have my arrogance. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll give 50% to Christ and then I'll, I'll just do whatever I want over here. No, it, it's, it's all encompassing. It requires everything, right? And there are some examples that Jesus gives, practical examples, uh, for what that looks like. But we must love Christ above everything. Jesus even goes to some of those relationships that are closest to us, um, which would be our families, right? John Gill, the particular Baptist uh, commentator, theologian, uh, said, Yea, these are to be neglected and forsaken. And he's talking about, in this passage, with family and turn from with indignation and resentment when they stand in the way of the honor and interest of Christ and dissuade from his service. Such who would be accounted the disciples of Christ should be ready to part with their dearest relations and friends with the greatest enjoyment of life and with life itself when Christ calls for it. So we need to be willing to give up those things, even, even our own families. You know, I, I think that uh, we have a tendency to idolize family um, and especially those of us who are parents, I think we tend to idolize our children and let them kind of rule our, uh, our lives. That should not be the case. We are to honor our Lord first, and we love and cherish and provide for our families within the context of that obedience. As we obey God, our love for our family will flow from that love of God, um, we love God first, and then we love our neighbor, the second greatest commandment. But love for God must be first. Our children, our parents, our mothers, our families must be secondary to obeying our Lord. But there's also cross-bearing that has to take place. We see in verse 27, Jesus bringing this out. And this is taking up suffering for the name of Christ and forsaking of oneself, of Christ in his way. And why would we think that our lives are going to be different than our master? Now, our master lived a difficult life. He was persecuted. He was spat upon. He was mocked. Why would we not think that if we are united to Christ and we identify with our Lord, why would we not think that there would be uh, a lack of difficulty or lack of difficulty in our lives? right? Do we think that the Christian life is going to be easy? That doesn't mean it's going to be painful every second, but there's going to be an identification with his suffering and a self-sacrifice. That's what that cross is. It's a, it's a road of, of death and suffering. It's not, a, it's not an easy road. John 15, 20, Jesus talks about this. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So he wants, Jesus wants his listeners to understand in verses 28 to 32, 
that the sacrifice should not be taken lightly, right? It should not be taken lightly. We're not to uh, be flippant in how we present um, the Christian life. Yes, we are to be enthusiastic about the Christian life. Yes, we're to tell others about Christ, but we also need to tell them the cost. What is the cost of following Christ? What does that look like? And Jesus brings up some practical examples. We are to consider this, right? It's not to be taken flippantly and, and considered in a way that is um, that is not seriously considered. So the two examples that Jesus gives here in Luke are building a tower, right? Someone building a tower in the process of that, and a king making war. So Jesus uses the example of building a tower um, that one must count the cost. There must be proper planning. There must be um, proper monies set aside to be able to pay for the thing, right? And that's the same kind of thought process that has to go in here. It should not be taken lightly. Consider what you're doing. It's it's sacrificial. It's not a cool um, club that you join and you get your sticker, you get your stamp on the hand and you're good to go. That's not how this works. There is real sacrifice involved that we must keep in mind. And if the person uh, fails to build that tower, he's going to look silly, right? Just like a, a project manager who has a project he's working on and he thinks he has it all planned out. He goes to execute the project and it fails completely. That person is not going to have a very good performance review at the end of the year for the absolute failure of that uh, of that project, right? He's going to look silly. Why? Because he didn't properly count the costs. He didn't plan properly. So Jesus is using that language here to help uh, prove his point as it relates to following him. John Gill again, he says, quote, as every wise man would, who has any thoughts of building a tower or of any other edifice in so much that have an intention to take up a profession of religion should sit down and well consider of it which does not imply that persons should delay making a profession on whom it is incumbent, but that this should be done with thoughtfulness, care, and prudence. Jesus goes on to a second example. He talks about a king making war, right? He, he talks about the example of a king making war with another king. In order to defeat another king, he needs to know if his forces are going to be enough to defeat that king he's fighting, right? If not, he would have to come to terms with that king. He would have to surrender, essentially, or, or come to some sort of truce. And it would make him certainly look incompetent, um, and it would be a defeat in a sense. So again, Jesus uses these examples to prove his point. Really, his somber point that the Christian life pro uh, produces and must have real sacrifice. And if we are true believers, we are going to have this attitude. And Jesus really is talking about what it means to be a true Christian. He's not just saying, well, this is what you should attain to. Well, that's true. He's saying this is the mark of a true Christian. There is self-sacrifice involved. There is a rooting out of those things that I love, right? It's a life-altering change that happens. It means that my desires, my needs, my possessions... And yes, even my precious children must be given completely to Christ, right? That's the cost of following Jesus, right? Now, verse 33, I think, 
is a verse that really hits the point home. And Jesus kind of sums up all that he's talking about here, but it's a very, uh, a very poignant point that he's making here and really uh, giving the crux and the sum of the matter. Jesus saying that if we don't give up everything that we have, we cannot be a disciple. And he's not saying that you don't have the ability to be my disciple if you don't exhibit these qualities. He's saying that this proves that you aren't his disciple at all. If you don't give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Right? Not because that prevents you from being my disciple, but because it will prove that you aren't his at all. Those are strong words. Those are strong words that we have to consider. You lack spiritual life if that's the case. You're lost. So this is really the a litmus test to see if you're really his, right? Because a true disciple will give all to him. Everything will be submitted to Christ and his lordship. Our time, our work, our homes, our Lord's days, and yes, even our repentance, right? Even our sin, we give up to him. Okay? And this doesn't mean we're perfect in every way and that we don't have things that we find ourselves loving more than Christ, but this is the general quality of our life. The general quality of our life is a forsaking, a leaving of the world and a walking towards obedience to Christ, right? This shows a submission to his lordship. Now, all of these things have to be considered as we uh, discuss um, who Christ, you know, what it means to follow Jesus Christ, right? John MacArthur, in talking about this, he says, only those willing to carefully assess the cost and invest all they had in Jesus' kingdom are worthy to enter. This speaks of something far more than mere abandonment of one's material possessions. It is an absolute, unconditional surrender. His disciples were permitted to retain no privileges and make no demands. They were to safeguard no cherished sins, treasure no earthly possessions, and cling to no secret self-indulgences. Their commitment to Jesus must be without reservation. And that's really where we have to look at ourselves and go, okay, are we holding anything back? Not just with repentance, but in general, but especially with repentance. Are we holding any sin back? Is there any sin that we're not forsaking, that we're not fighting, that we're not repenting of, that we're holding on to because we love more than Christ? Jesus in, in Luke chapter 9, going back a number of chapters, 9, 23 through 27, he says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Right? And we see this same principle uh, laid out here. There is a denial of the self if one is to follow Jesus Christ, right? There's a turning from something, which would be sin, and a willingness to identify with the suffering Savior. And Calvin says, quote, this self-denial is very extensive and implies that we ought to give up our natural inclinations in part with all the affections of the flesh and thus give our consent to be reduced to nothing, provided that God lives and reigns in us. So this is really the groundwork that has been laid as to uh, leading into repentance and what it is, right? 
before we can understand what repentance is, we need to understand why is it important that we, you know, that we repent? Where does this come from? It comes from an all-encompassing, um, all-engrossing uh, Christian life in Christ that demands all. That includes our sin. So as a natural result of that, we must see repentance as a fundamental doctrine. We must see repentance as a fundamental doctrine. So what is repentance? Right? It simply means uh, to turn away from sin and turn to Christ. That in a, in a very simplistic way, that is what repentance is. There's a real change that's taking place that results from a real heart change in the person, right? As a result of the Holy Spirit working in the person through conversion. And the underlying Greek word for repentance means to change the mind, really, essentially. And it means changing from one direction to another, one that was firmly set against Christ and one that is now facing toward him and is a turning from something to something, right? That's what repentance is. It's a turning from something to something else, right? In this case, from sin to Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone. That is what repentance is. J.C. Ryle said, repentance is a thorough change of a person's natural heart upon the subject of sin. So it is a crucial doctrine that your very soul in part depends upon. Your very soul in part depends upon repentance. It's not something that is optional. It's not something that we can uh, just go, okay, you know, that's just for those pious people over there. Um, that's just for those reformed people over there or whatever it might be. No, repentance is for the Christian. It is for the Christian and it is for the sinner as well. Um, as John MacArthur has said, repentance is a critical element of conversion. So without repentance, you can't be a Christian. There, there's no, if, if there is no repentance, not only in your, uh, not only in your, your life, after you profess the name of Christ, there's no repentance at all. And there's no evidence that uh, that you are a Christian. Um, but number two, repentance is a necessary fruit of the Christian life, right? It's required for salvation, but it's a necessary fruit of the Christian life. So these are uh, these are two reasons why, at least, that it is absolutely necessary. So number one, repentance is required for salvation, right? Now, when I say that it's required for salvation, I don't mean to say that repentance is a work as if it's somehow meriting our salvation um, or contributing to our salvation in any way. And I want to be very clear about that. But repentance works in concurrence with faith, right? It works along with faith. They go hand in hand, um, but it does not originate in us. It is a gift of God, right? Uh, the scripture is very clear that these things are not meritorious towards salvation, that nothing is, in fact, meritorious towards salvation outside um, of God's work, right? Romans 4, 1 through 4, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So if it was something that we were able to do that contributed to our salvation, then God would have to owe us something, right? If we were using it, working towards our salvation, that would be a problem. So faith was not something that 
Abraham was working to earn God's grace, but it was simply believing in what God had said, and he was accounted as having obeyed God's law perfectly. Right? Oh, even though Abraham's belief was something that he actually did. God did not believe God for Abraham. Abraham believed God. But that faith was a gift of God. And our repentance is no different. Right? Since when we turn from our sins and turn in faith to Christ, we are turning from something to something. Repentance is part of this conversion process. Right? And it's not to be equivocated with faith. It's not the same thing as faith. It's to be in conjunction with it. Right? But it does not, but since it does not contribute to our salvation, as you know, we've already noted this in Romans 4, it must also be a gift from God in the same way that faith is. So they go hand in hand. And that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, Philippians 129, for, uh, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So faith is a gift of God, right? It was granted to them that they believe. But since repentance goes with faith and repentance does not contribute to our salvation, it also must be a gift from God. That's the only logical conclusion that you can come to with that. But we even see repentance being tied to salvation in other places in the scriptures. We see Matthew 4, 17. Uh, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Even before Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist talked about this as well. Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Acts 2.38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see this theme of repentance in the scriptures being tied directly to salvation. There is a turning away from something when we come to Christ. There's there's this idea of um, that you can live like the devil, that you don't need to re- really repent, you just got to believe, is foreign to the scriptures. Let, make no mistake about that. Make no mistake about that. Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 15, paragraph 3 says, This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace, for the purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. So there is a humbling, there is a turning, there is a forsaking that is being done here, right? It's very, very important that we grasp these things. And like I said, they're uh, talking about those who believe that we don't really have to turn from our sin. We just have to believe that's called anti-lordship salvation. That's dangerous. Stay away from that stuff. Don't embrace it. Don't give credence to it. It is evil. It is anti-biblical. It is not the gospel. Okay? You must repent of your sins uh, as a if you are to be a believer in Jesus Christ, just like you have to believe, you must repent of your sins, right? A Christian, one who is truly coming to Christ, cannot be indifferent to sin. You can't be indifferent uh, to sin. There is a, a changing of relationship as it, uh, in relation to sin. Our mindset changes, our heart changes, our desires change. So if our desires are now made holy and have changed, then how in the world 
can I continue to live how I lived before with no change whatsoever, right? There is a turning and a forsaking. And this is what Paul assumes. Like if you look in Romans uh, chapter six, he assumes this of the believer, right? He uses very strong language to point out uh, that we are to live holy lives, that our lives are to be marked by holiness, right? But unfortunately, there are those in an effort to preserve salvation apart from works, which is a good and noble thing to do. Uh, they fall into gross error as it relates to um, turning from sin and repentance. They really misunderstand the relationship between salvation, works, and faith, right? They're misunderstanding that. But it, we are contributing works. That's already been done in Christ. We believe, and faith alone is the is the catalyst by which the righteousness of Christ comes, but we are repenting as we are doing that. We are turning, and we are commanded to repent as well. Repent and believe this gospel. And going back to Luke chapter 14, Jesus talks about forsaking all, right? We can't say that, well, you can still hold on to your sin. You can still hold on to your wicked life. And come to Christ. All you got to do is believe. Who cares about how you look, how you live? Because you don't want to fall into salvation by works, right? No, that is foreign to the New Testament. Everything must be given to Christ. Everything must be forsaken for his name. That's what Jesus said. Or you cannot be his disciple. Everything must be forsaken. It must be a self-denial, a turning away from sin. Denying those things that we love in place of Christ. That's the Christian life. That's the life we have chosen to live and what we have identified ourselves with. It's very important to remember. You must be very careful as we, um, as we hear these doctrines coming out that we do not let ourselves be seeped into them. They might sound good. They might sound great. It might sound like it makes sense. But the scriptures are explicit and clear. We must repent and believe. We must live holy lives as Christians. We must live holy lives as Christians. And this leads us into our second point, that repentance is necessary for the Christian life. Now, how do we apply this principle of repentance? So we know repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ. But how is that really laid out practically in our lives? How does that lay out practically in our lives? Repentance flows from our state as slaves of Jesus Christ, right? We're slaves of him and we're bound to obey him. This, this principle of slavery we see in different places in scriptures. James chapter 1 uses it. 1 Corinthians 7 uses it. And Paul even uses it in Romans 6 when talking about being a slave to sin as opposed to righteousness, right? There is a binding there. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Because we are slaves of Jesus Christ, that means we are now bound to obey him, right? We can't pretend like we can live like we're slaves to sin, yet while claiming we're slaves of Christ or claiming to know Christ. That's a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. We can't do that, right? Paul says, Romans 6, starting verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, 
you became slaves of righteousness. And that's verse 18. We obeyed, right? No longer slaves of sin. Now we're slaves of righteousness. Now our lives have changed and we are different, right? We obey. We obey. And there's this turning away from something and turning to something, right? You must remember that as we go through the Christian life to be very, very careful. You also see Luke chapter 6, 46 through 49. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I, which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So make no mistake, there will be a transformation. You say, Lord, Lord, but there's no repentance in your life, there's no obedience in your life, Make no mistake, you're going to be that man who built his house on the sand. Let's be very, very careful. And again, going back to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, I know I keep referring to, to that confession a lot. Um, that, is, that is my confession of faith. We hold to that substantially. Um, I hold to that substantially. Um, but it's a very helpful guide. It provides a lot of very helpful, um, uh, very helpful summaries of doctrine that can be referenced. Um, but in talking about repentance, it says, as repentance is to be continued for the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. So it's to be something that's continued throughout our life. We're to forsake those things, right? And this is part of what it means to be sanctified. As we are growing in grace and growing in faith, hating sin more, our love of sin is going to grow less and less. Our repentance is going to continue, right? We're to put those things to death, Colossians 3, 5 through 7, those evil things in our hearts, we're to put them to death. It's a continuous battle, right? It only makes sense that we can put something to death if it is still living, right? So these evil things, our sinful nature is still living inside of us to some extent, right? We're not completely free from sin, or we would be perfect. And the scripture says we're not. So these sins have to be killed. And this requires um, the uh, repentance to do so, right? We can only put to death those things that are in us if we turn away from those things first, right? I can't put to death sin if I don't have a repentant heart. I have to be willing to turn away from it to put it to death, right? We have to put these things to death. That's absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. And we take hold of these promises that God has given us. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, which is a very famous passage. Uh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have not sinned. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. So that's a promise, Christian. If you truly believe in the gospel of Christ, that's a promise that we have that we can take a hold of we can take a hold of that promise right that if we confess our sins we will be forgiven because of what because of what jesus did right we're not going to be thrown to the side oh you failed 
like our, our, our Lutheran friends, right. That believe that we can, as true Christians can fall away into a true apostasy, um, not just backslide, but actually apostatize. No, we don't, we don't have that problem. We don't have that. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us of our sins. As Christians, he will do so. So take hold of that promise. Be encouraged by it. Don't let sin hold on to you as a believer. Don't be pushed down by sin and thinking that uh, God does not hear us so that we cannot be freed from it. We can. It might take a long time. It might not be something that uh, is forsaken immediately or that is put to death immediately. But we must continue on with a repentant mindset in our lives, believing these promises of forgiveness, and we will be forgiven and cleansed, and our consciences will be calmed because they're being calmed in the right place, in Christ, in the blood of Christ, by our forgiving Father. So take, uh, take joy in that. Take joy in that and remember that promise. Right? And as our repentance continues, and as we grow in the habit of turning from our sin and not letting sin fester in our hearts, um, we'll be able to mortify sin, put it to death more. It'll be second nature, right? As we grow in our repentance, so we will grow in our mortification of that sin, right? We'll hate it more. We'll put it to death more um, because our mindset is changed and we're disciplining ourselves. So we, you know, another place that we can see when we turn from our sin and as we come with the right mindset, and that's another thing too, having the right mindset towards sin. I want to talk about that a little bit, what godly sorrow is. But when we come to the table, when we come to the Lord's table, that should be a place of renewal in terms of our repentance, right? The scriptures say to examine ourselves before coming to the table. It's not to be taken lightly. We're not to come to the table with hearts of um, bitterness or holding on to sin, we're to leave those things behind, right? We're to forsake those things. But really, the the table is where a, a place that we should really be renewing our repentance. And this is discussed in Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan in the 17th century, uh, in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, which is a really powerful book. If you want a book that makes you feel uncomfortable and is convicting, read that one, The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson, a whole book dedicated to the doctrine. But he talks about, he says there are two special times in which repentance must be renewed aside from our normal lives, right? Uh, and one of those is the Lord's Supper. So he says, before receiving the receiving of the Lord's Supper, their spiritual Passover is to be eaten with bitter herbs, now our eyes should be fresh, broached with tears, and the stream of sorrow overflow. A repenting frame is a sacramental frame. A broken heart and a broken Christ do well agree. The more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. So as we come to the, not only to the table, but as we approach God with repentant hearts, this should be our attitude. It should be one of humiliation and godly sorrow, right? should be godly sorrow. This is what repentance looks like, right? We go back to our passage, 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about the difference between godly sorrow, which produces repentance, and a worldly sorrow, right? A worldly sorrow. We need to have a, a godly sorrow, one that is humble and that roots out 
um, those sins that we love, right? There is really a false repentance that is led by worldly sorrow, right? And it's really mourns for sinful intentions, but then there's the godly sorrow that has the right attitude that leads to repentance. So we, we should not just see repentance as just simply a turning away from sin, although that is the essence of it. It's a turning with sorrow. It's a turning with a real realization that we have broken the law of God, right? There can't be repentance without sorrow. How can we, with calloused hearts, ask God to forgive us of our sins, right? If there is no um, grief or, or some sort of brokenness over our sin, David being the perfect example of this, right? Uh, Psalm 38, 18, for I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. So he had this attitude of heartfelt sorrow and displeasure over his sin. Um, also in, in Psalm 51, after uh, he had fallen into sin with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, and God used that to bring him to repentance, to break his heart in sorrow for sin. Uh, Thomas Watson again, he says, Godly sorrow, however, is chiefly for the trespass against God, so that even if there is no conscience to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the soul would still be grieved because of the prejudice done to God. So we should primarily grieve because we have violated the law of God, right? God's holy law is broken. We've been bought with a price and we're transgressing that love, right? Blessing upon blessing has been given to us and we sin against him. That should make us grieve, right? That should make us grieve over our sin, right? That should make us grieve. And, and David, being one who walked closely with God, he was a man after God's own heart, right? He uh, had sinned greatly. And so his grief and sorrow were in proportion to that uh, love and, and in proportion to the sin that he did. But we are commanded to grieve over our sin. James, James chapter 4 talks about this uh, in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, right? In context, James is talking to Christians who were playing with sin, right? They were playing with the world. They were toying around with the world and James is calling them to turn from that. But there, there is a humility that is required, right? The humility that is required that God looks at, Isaiah 66, 2, for all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So God will look away from the proud and the haughty, but those who come to Christ with contrite and humble hearts are going to be ready to submit to God's word. Those are the ones who God looks at. Those are the, the contrite ones he will not despise. So we need to take these uh, take these things seriously. We need to have a, a sorrow that is in proportion with our sin. Um, but just because you're sorry for sin doesn't mean there is true repentance. We see a class A example of this in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, with Esau, right? Jacob tricked Isaac into giving him the birthright, right? Giving him the blessing, I should say. And, and Jacob also manipulated Esau into giving him his birthright, 
instead of trusting God to provide for him, he tried to take it into his own hands. But Esau tried to get that birthright back, right? Hebrews 12, 16 through 18, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So he sought repentance, right? Even with sorrow and tears. But it was a false sorrow. It was not a sorrow of, oh, I've, I've sinned. I've neglected my responsibility as the firstborn. I, I've, uh, I've been a complete loser. But no, he didn't do that. He just wanted the birthright and the blessing. So he saw he he was sad for the consequences. He was not sad um, for actually sinning against God. But we also need to remember that our repentance is not necessarily going to look like another brother's. Right? We have to be careful not to compare ourselves to other brothers in our sorrow. Thomas Watson, again, again, I, I really encourage you to read his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. Very solid work, very helpful. Uh, but Watson, again, he says, question one, do all have the same degree of sorrow? Answer, no. Sorrow does produce greater or lesser sorrows. In the new birth, all have pangs, but some have sharper pangs than others. We have to be careful in comparing ourselves. You know, we might see a brother who is more mature in the faith and has a deeper sorrow for sin than maybe a newer Christian. And that doesn't mean that that newer Christian isn't a Christian necessarily. Uh, maybe they're just growing and they're not as sensitive to their sin or have as much of a hatred for it as that brother is as they're moving along in their sanctification. But there will be some grief. There will be some sort of sorrow that will be there um, because of the new relationship we have with sin. And, and this is the mark of a Christian. It's a command that we uh, that we have sorrow over our sin. So we have to be careful not to become discouraged in our in our grief. I think that can be easy to do as well. Maybe we, we become so grieved and so discouraged because of the sin that we see. And it's good to be somewhat discouraged. It's good to be somewhat beaten down by our sin, but it should not paralyze us, right? We should not let sin paralyze us in place um, in our grief and in our sorrow. But we should, uh, and even just in sin in general, we should not let our guilt paralyze us. We should look forward to Christ and move on, right? Um, but we should not miss Christ in this. Again, Watson, his spiritual sorrow will sink the heart if the pulley of faith does not raise it. As our sin is ever before us, so God's promise must be ever before us. As we much feel our sting, so we must look up to Christ, our brazen serpent. Some have faces so swollen with worldly grief that they can hardly look out of their eyes. That weeping is not good, which blinds the eye of faith. If there is not some dawnings of faith in the soul, it is not the sorrow of humiliation, but of despair. So let's remember to have a real godly sorrow, one that is not have not a sorrow of despair, but we should have a sorrow of true godly sorrow that produces repentance. And we look forward to faith in Christ and we move on and we obey and we forsake that sin and we seek to obey Christ as we walk along in the way. So just real quick as, as we close... Um, you know, I want to be, I want to reiterate 
that true repentance does not mean that we are going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we won't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean we won't necessarily fall back into the sin that we repented from. Um, that could happen, but there is a big difference in someone who is fighting and struggling with sin and growing in holiness and someone who has a false sorrow, maybe because just simply because of the consequences and then run headlong back into it without any desire to turn from it, right? We have to be very careful about that. So the question then becomes, is there really true repentance in your life? And does your life show a, a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ? Or does it, uh, or do you show any desire to grow in holiness, right? And these questions should cause us to examine ourselves. And uh, even for true Christians, I think sometimes we can grow lax in our repentance. Um, we grow comfortable and we shouldn't do that. We should never be comfortable with sin. We should uh, be quick to forsake it, quick to turn from it, quick to hate it. Um, you know, if we see sin, we need to we need to turn from it. We need to turn from it. Um, so I call upon you as believers, if uh, if repentance is weighing in your life, repent of your lack of repentance. Um, turn to Christ in faith again. Renew your repentance uh, and and obey Christ in that way. Um, but we also need to view uh, this as a reminder for um, unbelievers as well. If you do not turn from your sins and repent and believe in Christ, there will be consequences. Eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. Your soul is at stake. So if you're listening and, and you do not know Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and, and believe in him. Believe in his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Turn from his or turn from your sins. Forsake your life of rebellion and put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And only in there will you have true rest and true peace and the ability to continue a life of repentance and holiness. So I call upon you uh, to do that today if you do not know Jesus Christ. Well, I want to thank you for listening. I know this was a this was a longer episode, but um, I appreciate your attention and time. Um, Lord willing, we will be back in two weeks. We'll be taking next week off, but the week after that, uh, Lord willing, we will have Dr. Craig Carter on the show um, to discuss metaphysics um, and some fairly deep topics. But we're looking forward to that episode. Um, but until then, everyone have a great evening and week, and thank you for listening to the Particular Baptist Podcast.